Good morning, all. Come on in if you are um, out in the hall. We're going to do the Book of Romans this morning. So we'll be done in four or five hours. We'll be good. So I have a little bit of a surprise for you later this morning. I'll tell you what it is when we get to it. So um, we're going to get started on Romans. Let's pray. This is Module 5, Session 2, if anybody's taking notes. So um, we'll go through this just in very broad uh, broad brush strokes, and then I have a surprise for you. So let's pray together. Our Father, we come to you now taking a deep breath in our spirits, Lord, to begin our Lord's Day. How glorious it is that every Sunday we have the opportunity to, as much as possible, leave the world behind and to enter into fellowship and communion, not only with one another, but more importantly with you, Lord. And while the Lord Jesus promised that we may worship anywhere as long as we're worshiping in spirit and in truth, we value the gathering of your saints and we value the, the ecclesia, the assembly of your people. And so I pray that this day, Lord, is a refreshment to us. We live in a world that is, seems to be growing darker every day. And, but we know by faith that as the world grows darker, the time of your return grows closer. And so we look forward to that, Lord. And in the meantime, let us lift our voices and our hearts, our minds, all that we are unto you, so that we might continue to be light and salt. And toward that end today, Lord, I pray that as we try to get a brief understanding of the book of Romans, Lord, we thank you in advance for the word of God and how it touches our hearts and makes us more like Christ. We thank you that it is through the pen of the Apostle Paul in Romans 1 that we are told that the gospel is the power of God unto salvation. And because of that knowledge, we preach Christ with boldness and with confidence. Be with us this day, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. Romans is... Um, you almost don't know where to start because it's a, it's a massive book. When I was in seminary, a professor that I took Romans class with uh, said, don't preach Romans till you've been in a church for 10 years. That was his advice. Um, uh, and I think that's good advice because it's a, it, it's, it is the pinnacle of the Apostle Paul's writing. And so because of that, it's a complex book and it's not an easy book. Um, it's not meant to be. Um, Ironically, a five-year-old can read Romans and get saved understanding the gospel, and yet then you can spend a century studying Romans and feel like you've never even scratched the surface. So my strategy this morning is to hit some very tall mountain peaks, and, and that's all, because there are so many debated issues in Romans that um, I just want to hit some tall mountain peaks so that you know when you're reading through Romans kind of what to look for and, and how to be blessed by it. And so we're going to go fairly quickly through this, and then uh, I've got a little surprise for you a few minutes before we're done. So the author is the Apostle Paul. I've already alluded to that. Um, its place in the canon of the New Testament is very helpful and, and interesting. Um, Paul introduces himself in detail in Romans 1 verse 1. This comes at the head of all, the, uh, all of Paul's epistles. And uh, I heard one preacher say that Romans stands as the sentinel, as the guardian as the introducer to all of Paul, and it really does. The book of Acts ends with Paul at Rome. Uh, Romans was already written, but it serves to introduce us very smoothly to him. And so we have 
We have the narrative about Paul at the end of Acts, and then we go right into Romans. So how does he present himself? He presents himself as the apostle to the Gentiles. He is a, a Jew, but he is a uh, Roman citizen. He can bridge the gap between them. He has a desire for Rome. He believes his efforts in the East are completed to a certain degree. And he says in Romans fifteen nineteen, by the power of signs and wonders, by the power of the Spirit of God, so that from Jerusalem and all the way around, I have fulfilled the ministry of the gospel of Christ. And he desires to link up with Rome. In Romans 1.10, I mention you always in my prayers, asking that somehow by God's will I may at now at last succeed in coming to you. And then, and we've quoted this frequently here, he says something that's, I think, unusual in the evangelical church. He says in Romans 1.15, I'm eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome. And it's from that verse, that was a life-changing verse for me uh, many years ago to understand that we preach the gospel to believers and that you need the gospel. He had an aspiration to go to Spain. And Rome, Rome was uh, a potential financial base for him and a prayer base. Um, Spain is a long way from his sending church in Antioch of Syria. Rome is halfway there. And so Rome would serve as sort of a, a home base for him. And he also expresses his apprehension concerning Jerusalem. He asks the, the Romans to uh, pray with him for his coming ministry in Jerusalem. He's worried about the unbelievers who might persecute and worried about the believers who might not have a, a pleasant attitude that Paul is bringing a financial gift to them. That's what, uh, part of what Paul is writing Romans about. So that's how he introduces himself. We get immediately to a, an interpretive issue, and that is who are the readers? And so I'm going to just give you some broad uh, brushstrokes here. Uh, first of all, the believers in Rome, generally speaking, are the original readers. Then you get immediately into who makes up the original readers. Is it Gentiles or Jews or both? Well, in chapter 1, verses 5 and 6, in verse 13, and in chapter 15, verses 15 and 16, he calls it a Gentile church. But he thoroughly addresses Jewish Christians as well. So there's clearly both. Um, a lot of scholars believe the vast majority were Gentiles, and some scholars believe the vast majority were Jews. So wh where are we going to fall? Uh, we'll find out when we get to heaven. Um, I tend toward the majority of Gentiles, but uh, I'm, I'm not going to go to the stake over that. Chapter 2 confronts arrogant Jews. Chapter 11 confronts arrogant Gentiles. And so that's clear that there's, they're both there. Um, one of the purposes of the letter then is, to, uh, is a call to accept one another. And, and do we see this in the early church at all? We saw it right off the bat in Acts chapter 6, didn't we? That, that there was a conflict between those who were, who were uh, not Jews and those who were. And so the, the apostles were called in to fix that. We also know, though, that it was a very good and solid church. We would say potentially um, that the church at Rome is probably the most well-taught and most solid church in the New Testament. Um, I think there's good, a good case to make for that. Romans 1, verse 8, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for all of you because your faith is proclaimed in all the world. What does that mean? It means that, that churches were saying, we want to be like them. And isn't that great that we have model churches that way, that where we, we model ourselves after them? Romans 15, 14, I myself am satisfied about you, my brothers, that you yourselves are full of goodness, filled with all knowledge, and able to instruct one another. That's important. 
Um, I teach church planters every summer at a church planting academy. And one of the things that, questions I get asked all the time is, how do you know you're not a church plant anymore? Well, that's simple. One of the ways you know you're not a church plant anymore is when you have people in the church who are now well taught enough to teach one another. Now you're not a church plant with one guy who's the teacher and everybody else the learners. Now you have a group of disciple makers. And so now you've moved into maturity. He does say in chapter 15, verse 15, but on some points I have written to you very boldly by way of reminder because of the grace given me by God. I, as a preacher, I love every New Testament Bible verse. Uh, Second Peter has several that speaks of giving reminders. That means I get to repeat myself to you and I have a biblical basis for it. So I love those verses. And somebody says, are you ever going to preach that sermon again? Well, I hope so. I, I need to. Paul puts the burden, and this is really important, on the Gentiles that they're to be the agents of reconciliation between Gentiles and Jews, that they needed to reach out. So, so he believed they could do that. It's very possible that the Jews and the Gentiles in the church were basically not associating with one another. And now, I, I know it's hard for us to conceptualize. The church at Rome, capital C, was made up of lots of little congregations that met together, but it was still considered one church. That is a very unifying thing. Um, that would be a wonderful thing. Wouldn't it be great if an apostle wrote a letter to all the churches of Bakersfield and call us all to this unity under one doctrinal statement? So it could be that Jews were meeting together and Gentiles were meeting together, but never the twain shall meet. And so that was a, a problem. Now, I need to give a little historical note here to help us understand this. Um, <clears throat> in Acts chapter 18... Uh, Priscilla and Aquila, Jewish believers, had to leave Rome and they had to go to Corinth. Now, why was that? Emperor Claudius had decreed in 49 AD that all Jews had to leave Rome. And so they left, but Claudius died five years later, so the Jews started coming back home. They started coming back. Well, now uh, Priscilla and Aquila are back in Rome. Paul is writing about three years later or so, and he's possibly... Uh, they're possibly there to give some leadership to the church since some of the believers are meeting in their home. So we know that, that one of the homes uh, that was used as a church facility, so to speak, was the home of Priscilla and Aquila. And so uh, historians have theorized that it's possible that when the Jewish believers arrived back, that they were somewhat shunned by the now all-Gentile church, by the Gentile uh, believer majority. And so... Um, so there would be this sense of separation that they weren't necessarily being accepted back. That would explain why Paul puts the burden on the Gentiles to be receptive of the Jewish believers. Now, just a little historical context as well. Paul had just gone through, right at this time, his horrible ordeal at Corinth, which we talked about recently, including false apostles, corrupting influences, divisions, arrogance he even made one visit to Corinth where they literally put him on his way and said get out of here and they kicked him out and the book of second Corinthians is his letter of joy that they have received him back and that that they have reconciled so the theory is is that he's trying to avert that same sort of disaster in Rome and so the book of Romans may serve toward that um, there's reason to believe then that Paul felt that Rome was was a key church and also was a church in danger. So he's writing a preemptive strike. And that is the book of Romans. I think all of us, if you've been in, in our circles in the church of Jesus Christ, there are certain churches that have been around for years and years and years that we sort of key onto 
And when those churches go off the rails, we get a little bit, we get a little bit uh, nervous because we, we key onto them and we feel like we're doing okay if they're doing okay. And, and I think that's how Paul viewed the church at Rome. And then finally here to his readers, they were a church in need. What did they need? Chapter 1, verse 11, I long to see you that I may impart to you some spiritual gift to strengthen you. At some level, they needed encouragement. They needed strengthening. We don't know what that is necessarily, but uh, it could be the issues that he brings up. Chapter 15, verse 5, may the God of endurance and encouragement, there it is again, grant you to live in such harmony with one another in accord with Christ's likeness. So they were strong, but they needed to be stronger and they needed to be more fully established. They needed to lead the way, so to speak. Uh, probably the best date for the book of Romans is the spring of A.D. 57, maybe 58, right at the end of Paul's third missionary journey. He's just gone through all of, his, all of the difficulties with Corinth. Um, when he writes uh, Romans, in fact, he's in Corinth for the third time, headed to Jerusalem, and he sends the letter with Phoebe um, in Romans 16. I preached a whole sermon once on Phoebe. Um, she is likely the very first person to have ever read the book of Romans. Um, so I think that's very interesting that Paul entrusted that with her. Historical and theological themes, 200 of them. There's a lot of debate over the most important ones. Uh, the top three, though, I think are, are clear. The first historical theological theme, and I'm just, again, hitting mountaintops here, um, the Jew and Israel. The Jew and Israel, chapters 9 through 11, are devoted to Israel and how a Gentile should view Israel. Paul reminds the arrogant Gentiles in chapter 1, verse 16, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first, and also to the Gentiles. That's to put the Gentiles in their place. Remember, the gospel came to the Jew first. You have the theme of righteousness and justification 69 times in chapters 1 through 10, and chapter 14, this is the definitive New Testament teaching on the doctrine of justification, the righteousness of God, justification. This is where you find the bulk of information. Uh, chapter 5 uh, has a ton of information. Chapter 6, a ton of information, and so forth. Then you have the theme of the gospel, that uh, God sent the Lord Jesus Christ to be the ransom for our sin. And just one little uh, note in English to help you remember. If you take the letters of the word Romans and rearrange them, they spell ransom. And so you can remember that Romans and ransom kind of go together. It is the gospel. Uh, Jew and Israel, righteousness, justification, gospel. Those are the top three. I'm just going to plow through these pretty quickly. You have the wrath of God. It's spoken of 12 times. And this is interesting the wrath of God is spoken of as both a present reality and a future certainty. How is the wrath of God displayed right now? Uh, according to the early part of Romans, part of the wrath of God is the fact that sinners get turned over to their own desires. And they become completely nonsensical. They, they can't comprehend spiritual things at all because God has turned them over to their own sensuality. Uh, what, what do you have today? You have unbelievers that if you ask them this question, what is a woman? They can't answer it. They don't know how to answer it because they've been turned over to their own desires. You have the theme of salvation. Now you might say, well, wait a minute. We already talked about the gospel. Um, <clears throat> lots of churches talk about salvation. Very few talk about the gospel. Well, how can you do that? 
Well, if you don't talk about the gospel, the salvation you're speaking of is now a false salvation. It's uh, accept Jesus into your heart. The Bible never says that. The question is not whether you accept Jesus. The question is whether he'll accept you and, and so forth. So salvation is the result of the gospel. Um, false salvation is the result of not preaching the gospel, the true biblical gospel. So uh, we have the go- salvation brought up 13 times. Um, that is deliverance from God's righteous judgment, God's wrath. And I think that's so important that salvation is not an emotion that happens to you. It's not something you feel. It is a change in legal status before God. And whether you feel something or not is irrelevant. It is that you are now viewed as righteous before God. Salvation in Romans is spoken of as a present reality. It's also spoken of as a, as a future culmination. Paul even says, we shall be saved. That's not to say that you, you might lose your salvation. It's just to say that your salvation isn't complete. And if you, if you think it's complete, just go look in the mirror and say, no, not complete. We're, we're not done here. The gospel is the power of God to salvation um, contrasted with, with good works. Uh, Romans 1.16 um, is the verse I quote to myself every Sunday before I preach. That the gospel is the power of God unto salvation. Because I know that simply speaking the words of truth are absolutely powerful and nothing can with, withstand that power. And then we see also that we have been justified. And Romans, in no uncertain terms, presents justification as A, a one-time event, and B, something that is forever. And it is, it's not repeatable. It doesn't need to be repeated. It is, it is certain. It is past tense. You, we don't say, I'm being justified. If you say, I'm being justified, it makes you a Catholic. You say, I have been justified. Romans 8, 1, there is therefore now no what? Condemnation. It's done. Then you have the law of God. How can you tell that he's addressing Jews? Because he speaks of the law 73 times. Chapter 3, the law reveals sin. Chapter 5 and chapter 7, the law even incites sin. That you, you know the law and it makes you sin. If you're not a believer, if you're not in Christ because you know what's wrong, you know what's right, and you decide to do what you don't want to do, and you decide to not do the things you know you ought to do. Chapter 7, why? Because you're a belie- an unbeliever and you can't uh, do those things. And so the law proves you to be a sinner. Chapter 4 and chapter 5, the law brings wrath. How does the law bring wrath? The law brings wrath because God compares your life to his righteous standard and you don't meet it. Therefore, he has the legal right, so to speak, to bring wrath against you. The law is provisional, chapter 7. The law is of divine origin, chapter 7. And the law is fulfilled by the indwelling of the Spirit in believers, chapter 8. Then you have uh, the flesh, 26 times. The propensity of humans towards sin. You have sin 54 times. Sin is defined as missing the mark. That if you're aiming toward the righteousness of God, sin says you'll always miss that mark. Unrighteousness is missing God's standard, falling short. You have the Spirit of God 33 times. Sometimes referring to, I'm sorry, the term spirit 33 times. Sometimes refers to the human spirit other times to the Holy Spirit. Romans chapter 8 is, is our incredible text on the Holy Spirit and how the Spirit works in salvation. Um, you have faith 61 times. Very clear. You have life and death 78 times combined. Sometimes it speaks of physical death, other times spiritual death, and the context determines that. 
You have the Old Testament as a major theme. This is the most explicitly saturated uh, of Paul's letters with the Old Testament. He, it's, it's all over the place. Paul's message is in line exactly with the revelation already given in the Old Testament. Just a little side note, because we've talked about this before. Um, covenant theologians who hold to the idea of New Testament priority, that the New Testament reinterprets the Old, they get really tripped up over Romans because you can't really find any place in Romans that reinterprets the Old Testament because Paul quotes the Old Testament so many times, always in context, that that argument falls apart pretty fast. And so uh, Romans is not a good place for them in that particular belief system. So you have multitudes of, of quotes from the Old Testament. Romans chapter 4 the Old Testament is the entire topic. Uh, Abraham, uh, also Galatians 5, the same topic. Old Testament terminology is more pronounced than any of Paul's letters. <clears throat> so who's he writing to? Clearly, at least part of his audience are people highly educated in the scriptures. They knew the Old Testament. Now, that might be Gentiles too. It's not like Gentiles didn't know the Old Testament, but they, didn't, they weren't raised in it the way a Jew was. And so he's clearly writing to those who are educated in the scripture. So what does that tell you? Contrary to those who uh, would say that you start reading the Bible in the New Testament and work backwards to the Old Testament, the only way to really understand Romans is to know the Old Testament first. And that makes Romans kind of come alive. So um, it, it, next time you read Romans, take a quick perusal through the Old Testament. Take a month and just read quickly through the big parts of the Old Testament, then read Romans, and I guarantee you it'll make more sense to you. So there's a, I know that's a lot. Thank you for listening, but uh, let's keep going here so we can get to our surprise. Uh, the purpose. Paul communicated to Jewish and Gentile Christians. Notice I didn't put any percentages there. We'll let you decide that. Communicated to Jewish and Gentile Christians that both were acceptable to God based on a common righteousness received by faith in Christ. Now, I've given you a structure here for Romans, and it is, let me put it this way, and this is rare for me, but I'm playing it safe on this structure because, uh, and I know you don't lose sleep over this, but a lot of scholars have lost sleep over the structure of Romans. It's a hotly debated issue, mostly because it's hard to tell where one subject ends and the next one begins because there's a lot of great overlap. So I've given you the one that pretty much everybody would agree with, um, salvation chapters 1 through 8 and I will note that chapters 1 through 8 can be further subdivided pretty easily from chapters 1 to 4 and then 5 to 8 but I just broadly said salvation the sovereignty of God in chapters 9 through 11 and, and specifically the sovereignty of God over Israel Romans 9 10 and 11 is absolute nailing proof that God is not done with Israel and then service Chapters 12 through 16. Now I give you this simple outline because it's, it's pretty well accepted. Let me give you one more way to think of Romans, though, and you'll be more familiar with this. This will be familiar territory. Chapters 1 through 11, doctrine, and chapters 12 through 16, duty. Why is that familiar to you? Because that's how Paul writes in pretty much all of his letters. Uh, for example, Ephesians, chapters 1 through 3, doctrine, chapters 4 through 6, duty. And so for the Apostle Paul, application of theology always follows knowledge of God. So uh, that's another simple way to look at it. Interpretive issues. Where do we begin? I will just do two of them. The purpose of Romans. 
is an interpretive issue. And, and I'm not going to fall hard on this one because every one of these views has really good merits. Um, is it primarily theological? Is it a theological treatise? There's a definite theological tone to it. And, and absolutely, it is, the, it is the writing from the Apostle Paul on the gospel. So we wouldn't say it's not theological by any means, but is that his main purpose? Um, I would say this is taking that is primarily a theological purpose of the book. I think this is where pastors uh, go off the rails just a little bit. Um, the book of Romans, and I'm going to just give you a little history lesson here of Bible churches. In the typical Bible church, the book of Romans tends to be the place where a pastor decides he's going to prove his worth. That he's going to prove that he can exegete a book of the Bible longer than anybody in church history for the past 2,000 years. And so what you have in churches is, is pastors going through Romans um, for 8, 10, 12, and 15 years, which is great. You know what you end up with? a bunch of theological eggheads who don't know how to live their lives because it took nine years just to get to Romans 12. Therefore, oh, it took us 12 years to get to the therefore. So this is, a, this is one of the reasons, like I've been working in my own mind how to preach through Romans. I've been playing with this for two years, just working through because the temptation is overwhelming. Now, uh, one of my preaching heroes, Martin Lloyd-Jones, he spent over 300 messages in Romans. He took over a decade. But he didn't do it on Sunday morning. He did it on Friday nights. And so uh, he did that slowly, but his Sunday morning preaching schedule was quite a bit different. So I think what leads to that is the wrong view that, that Romans is a book of theology. Does Romans contain our great theology of the gospel? Absolutely, but that's not the primary purpose of Romans. And if you think that's the primary purpose, I think that's what leads you to the, the point of you know, a pastor proudly saying that it took him 19 weeks to get through Romans 1, verse 1. And you're just going, oh, I, I'm not even going to live that long you know, to finish this book. I'd like to find out how it ends. So I think that's a mistake when you think it's purely theological. Others feel it is a missionary book. And we will say this, it's the best missionary support letter ever written. Absolutely. Uh, missions agencies have used Romans as a model for how to let churches know of the needs that you have as a missionary. And Paul does this. He, he tells them very clearly, I want to go to Spain. I want to do this and I want to do that. Others feel it is apologetic. that It is defending the gospel. And I think that falls into the theological tone as well. And, uh, and, and that is true. It defends the gospel better than anything. Uh, what, do we, what do we use? I keep in my Bible, because I, I have a terrible memory. Um, I keep in my Bible the Romans road to salvation, right? A little sticky note right there. I, you know, guests to our church, they come up and they ask me questions. And I, I look at this and they say, you have to use cheat sheets. And I say, well, I want to get the gospel right. So I'm going to read you the right verses. So yes, it is apologetic. It absolutely defends the gospel. And you can clearly um, uh, defend the gospel from Romans. Even some of the themes we just went through, sin, faith, um, wrath, law, those, those things are key concepts in our soteriology. And then probably what I think the best view, and, and again, I'm not falling hard on this because all four of those purposes are found in here, but I like the pastoral view that Paul's ultimate purpose is concern for the church. He's calling for mutual acceptance. He's calling for unity. Um, he's calling for the strong to accept the weak and for the Gentile and the Jew to accept one another. 
You have Romans 14 and 15. What do you do with the weaker brother? What do you do with the one that just came out of paganism and is offended by the fact that you went to the pagan meat market because you like steak? What do you do with that? So what's the purpose? I, I would say it encompasses all of those, but ultimately it's pastoral, just like all of the letters of Paul. And then you have the theme of the righteousness of God. And what I'm going to do is uh, I, I'm going to give you our little surprise uh, here in just a moment. And next week, I'm going to take a little deviation here. And I want to spend some time talking about the righteousness of God in Romans. And, because that's a huge theme. And I've got about four pages of, of pretty detailed notes. Because the righteousness of God is, is pretty important. Just a couple of overviews here. Uh, it's first mentioned in chapter 1, verse 17. For in it, that is the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. So why do we put this under interpretive issues? Some say, well, the righteousness of God is spoken of as an attribute of God. And I'd like to show you next week that's really not so much the case. Um, some say it's a righteous behavior engendered by God. And, and that's sort of the case. But the point of the book of Romans is that the righteousness of God is the standing that you get that's given by God, that you are seen as being as righteous as Christ. And, and so that's, that's the key to salvation. And so we'll spend some time on that. And in fact, I'm going to give you kind of a mini sermon next week on the righteousness of God in Romans, walking through every chapter. Um, and, and I'll do that then. But what I want to do right now is our little surprise. And uh, he didn't know we were going to do this until just a few minutes ago. Um, but I introduced you a few weeks ago to Jay Street, uh, who's going to be administering uh, BTI. Um, Jay has taught the Book of Romans at the Master's University and um, also wrote, <laughs> it was your master's thesis, right? It's not a thesis. He got in trouble because it's way too long. It's like this thick. And that's just on one chapter. Um, it's on chapter seven. And, but he had to write about the, uh, the extensive context about Romans. So I... I have a philosophy of ministry. I don't believe that you should ever squelch talent. Um, I don't feel like I need to be the guy all the time. Jay knows more about Romans than anybody sitting in this room, myself included. And so I'm going to bring him up here, and we're going to do a Q&A on Romans. Is that okay with you? All right. He didn't know this until a second ago. So we could start with the first question is just tell us about Romans, but we won't, we won't do that. Um, <laughs> so, uh, um, Jay, we'll start with this. Just kind of in, in a couple of minutes, just tell us what got you interested in Romans and why, why is that a big deal to you? Because yeah. it's, like, it's like his hobby, too. It's kind of a weird nerdy thing, but it's, uh, yeah. it's his hobby. Okay, here we go. All right. I, seriously, once I start talking about Romans, my wife can attest to this. She's we'll be here all day. Right she's now. right here, so yeah. she's going to go to sleep here because she's already heard all this before. But... Um, yeah, so this goes back to my college days is when I got into studying Romans. And um, I love the book of Romans because during college, I was going through a time of making my faith my own, really trying to understand and know why I believe what I believe. And a lot of that came down to what I was learning in Romans. I started to read the gospel as it's explained in Romans. By the way... Not to get off on like too much of a bunny trail, but Romans is the only book in the Bible that has a thorough chronological argument of the gospel. I don't know if you ever thought of that before. It, there are the gospel accounts of Jesus' life, but it's not a systematic explanation of the gospel. So 
The question that you have to ask then is why? Because that's intentional. Why is Romans like that? And you have to think about that through the, the whole context of Rome and the whole background there that uh, Romans is. So that's where I really got into it. And then as I studied in college and as I studied in seminary, um, the Romans 7 issue became very perturbing to me. Is that the right word? I don't know. Yeah. Anyways, whatever. Um, and I was trying to figure out what is this talking about? And I have literally held three different views on that passage in my life. Um, in, in a minute, we'll have you explain the, what the Romans 7 issue is, because that's not Oh, yes, that's right, right. that's we'll right. That right. Very good, yep. And so I decided to write on that. So I wrote on it in a class, in a Romans class, taught by Dr. Keith X. Essex, who both um, Steve and I just love him as a professor and as a man of God. Um, and then I wrote it as my thesis, which did turn into a semi-dissertation-length thing that nearly killed me. So um, anyways, so I just, Romans, the argument of Romans, when you understand it, and you have to just really get into the argumentation on how Paul's thinking, how is he thinking through that book? When you start to understand that, it comes alive. It's an amazing book, and I highly recommend thorough study in this uh, definitely on Friday nights, because then you'll just become, you know, one pencil in a large, you know, one color of a pencil in a large color spectrum of pencils. And you need to un- you need to have the full breadth of scripture. Uh, but this is quite a book to be able to engage in because it gives you the full gospel presentation there. So, yeah. All right. Thank you, Jay. So um, you said that that um, Romans presents the gospel chronologically. Could you kind of just elaborate on that just a little bit? What do you mean by that? Yeah. So there is a semi-chronological development of how Romans goes from chapter to chapter. You probably, if you've studied Romans and you've read Romans, you can see that. He starts He starts his introduction like he normally does with letters, right? You know that. But then in chapter 1, verse 18, he just kind of makes this subtle shift. And you're kind of like, where are we? It's like, for the wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness. And he starts to get into all this sin and sin and sin. And he starts to describe that. And then in chapter 2, he begins to condemn people. Hey, you're not a good person, and you're not a good person, and nobody's a good person, right? And then, you start, then you're all of a sudden, you're in chapter 3, and it's like, well, there's no hope. We're doomed, right? And then it's like, wait a minute. But now, chapter 3, verse 21 The righteousness of God has been revealed. And so he begins to describe, this is the only solution that you have. It's the gospel. I've given you every possible other opportunity, and I've shown you why that's impossible. It's not really possible, right? So you need the gospel. And then he begins to describe, how is the gospel founded? It's not founded upon works. It's founded upon faith, right? It's founded upon faith. But why? Because now we've got to describe... Well, there's a whole thing on this, but right, he's really talking to an imaginary person. I know that sounds weird. It's like, why would Paul? It's like he's schizophrenic, right? He's, he's talking to an imaginary debating opponent. That's the idea. And he's talking primarily to a Jewish person. Why? Well, there's a whole context to that. Okay, I can't get into that right now. Begins to develop his argument by talking with this person and asking lots of questions from that person's perspective. And then he's going back and forth and answering those things. And he's basically cleverly walking through the gospel systematically as he's answering those questions. It's really amazing 
how much he packs in into such a short book. And you're like, well, that's a really long book. But when you see how much he packs in, it's actually a relatively short book. It's incredible. Um, so then he begins to develop, hey, here's justification by faith alone in Jesus Christ. And that helps us to understand Jesus Christ and who he is, his representation of us in chapter 5. And chapter 6, how that makes an impact into our lives spiritually. Chapter 7, what does the law have to do with that? Chapter 8, the sanctification that we have in the spirit and the power under the new covenant. And he's just walking systematically all the way through until he begins to describe like, hey, one day we're going to be in glory. And then you kind of have like your entire systematic theology class lined up in order there in Romans. So that's a, a key component to how Romans is... Um, developing, so that's a short answer. Very good. But, yeah. Um, let me let me key in on the. You briefly mentioned it, and and I've as I've read your your things and and I've gotten things from your bibliography as well. Um, the the view of Romans where Paul asks questions, and those questions are not from his own viewpoint; it's from an imaginary Jew's viewpoint. Yeah. For example, chapter three, verse one. Then what advantage has the Jew? That's not Paul asking. Gee, I wonder what advantage has the Jew. He's asking on somebody else's behalf. Could you talk about that dynamic and what it's even called? Um, That's the diatribe formula, is that right? right? That's right. Talk about that and why that's so effective. Yeah, diatribe is such a it's such a fancy word, right? And when we hear that, we kind of want to like shut down. We're like, I don't even want to talk about this anymore. Because like, what's diatribe? Well, and I remember studying this and going to the library, and I'm like, I do not want to study diatribe stuff, right? But basically, it's, when we boil it down, it's very simple. It's basically classroom methodology teaching. That's what we do a lot in education. If you're a teacher, you understand this. You're asking questions, and sometimes you even ask questions from the perspective of what the student would be thinking. And that's exactly what Paul's doing. It is literally the most effective teaching tool. When you actually put yourself in the shoes of your student and you begin to ask that question for them, then that helps them to understand, oh, yeah, like I connect with that. That's... That's the question that I have. And then you begin to answer that. That is how Paul is developing his argument. He even steps into the shoes, like, verbatim, talking as though he's talking, like, in the first person as his opponent. In chapter 3, verse 7, he says, But if through my lie the truth of God abounded to his glory, why am I still being judged as a sinner? Do you think that Paul is talking about himself in that situation? Of course not, right? The context is very clear. He's talking in the shoes of somebody else. Do you know how many questions, this is interesting, you know how many questions are actually in Romans that are like that? There's like 33. That's huge. There's no book in the New Testament, maybe even the entire Bible, that comes close to that number. When you understand the rhetor- what's rhetorical questions, right, speaking uh, on behalf of somebody else, okay, when you understand the rhetorical st- uh, question strategy that Paul is using, it begins to open up the book in the, where Paul is going. Follow the rhetorical questions, and you're following the logic of the book. That's what you need to do. Follow those rhetorical questions. Where are those rhetorical questions going? And then you'll understand where Paul's thinking is going. That, that helps unravel a lot of mysteries. Like, there's a lot of things in Romans that are very difficult to understand, but sometimes it's because we impose our view of what we already think Romans is saying, or we impose a, a structure that we think fits well. Um, sometimes it's based out of the Protestant Reformation, which is great. We 
you know, we totally agree with the Protestant Reformation. There's nothing wrong with that. That's actually a really good thing. But sometimes it, it changes our view of Romans because the structure is leading the meaning of the text instead of the meaning of the text leading the structure. You have to let Paul speak for himself, and you have to follow those questions because that's his way of developing his argument systematically one point after another. Very good. And that, that fits right along with what we've talked about in BTI all along is that understanding how a book is put together, introduction to the book, that's half your work in understanding a book. That um, it's a mistake to just pick a verse out of context and start trying to understand it. Mm-hmm. You, you look bigger picture first. Um, so uh, just, to, just to key off of that, and I'm going to ask you my next question. Uh, when I was doing my doctor ministry program, one of our uh, traveling professors, it was, it was a great program. So we had lots of people who, who came and, and traveled. Um, and, and one of them, uh, uh, was Dr. Derek Thomas. And he talked about diatribe technique in preaching, and he used the book of mm-hmm. Romans as an example. Mm-hmm. And you don't know it, but you hear me do this every week because I use a specific phrase. You might say, yeah. that is to put, put the, your question out there so that you don't have to ask it. And it gives me as a teacher the opportunity to ask the question for you that you should be asking. Mm-hmm. And so um, so. Romans, he doesn't say, you might say, then what advantage has the Jew? Mm. But that's what he does. But Derek Thomas went through Romans, and he went through probably a dozen of those 30-something questions. And what did you say, 33? 33. 33, yeah. yeah. A dozen of them said, this is Paul's teaching technique, and it's genius. Mm-hmm. And it puts, it connects information of the gospel to the student. So, mm-hmm. um, yeah, p- appreciate that. So let's talk about then, um, let's talk about... Uh, the Romans 7 issue. <laughs> so, <laughs> How much time do you yes. have? Yes. Um, so I don't want to get too, I don't want to get all nerdy about this because I, I want you to be able to take this home and apply it to your life. But like two parts. First of all, kind of basically explain what the Romans 7 issue is mm-hmm. and then where you've landed and, and, and why. Yeah. yeah. So take some time on that. You might have heard the words from Paul that resonate with all of us. And I, I say myself included to this day. I can resonate with these words. Um, I'm not doing the thing that I want to do, but I'm doing the theory, very thing that I hate. Can you guys resonate with that? Right? It's a Christian experience. Bible interpretation, you must understand, and we know this, right? You're in this, a lot of you have been in this class for a little while. You understand how Bible inter- interpretation should work. It should start with observation, Yeah. And then interpretation, and then what? Application. application, right? Except here we put it at the bottom. Go up. That's right. <laughs> so we, in Romans 7, we tend to reverse it. We start with, that resonates with me. That must mean that's what this is saying, interpretation. That means I'm going to see what I want to see, observation. You see? We reverse it. Because it's such a compelling passage to us, and we want it to relate to us because it gives us validation for ourselves Oh, good. And this is not everybody. Not everyone thinks this way, okay? It's okay. But I know a lot of people do. Oh, at least someone as godly as the Apostle Paul struggled so, so intensely with his sin. That helps me to feel what? Better. About what? Myself. Is that sanctification? I say it's actually the opposite of sanctification, isn't it? Right? Because it actually treat sin less seriously. Now it's not as important. Oh, it's okay. 
good. I feel better about myself. Now you're like, oh, you're going after me. Don't do this. Don't get into my kitchen, okay? But all right, so here's the thing. So the Romans 7 issue is, is Paul speaking as, about his current Christian experience or not? Is he speaking about his current Christian experience? Or, as many, many scholars have also said, is he speaking about an unbelieving experience? And that's usually kind of how it's pitted, is these two views, okay? Now, church history has gone back and forth on this. Most in our evangelical circles, we typically take the Christian view. Paul's speaking about his Christian experience. That's pretty common in our circles that we run in. That's okay. That's fine. Um, Church history is very divided on this issue. If you, it might be surprising for you to hear that. You might think, oh, I thought everybody took the Christian view. No, it's not. It's, it's pretty divided, actually. In fact, the early, the, actually, the Christian view doesn't even pop up in the early church until Augustine in the 300s, 400s A.D. Early church fathers really took a more unbeliever view. And as time went on, the Catholic Church adopted the Christian view according to Augustine, according to others, um, and then the Protestant Reformation, Calvin, Luther, and so forth, they took the Christian view as well, and they kind of carried that with them. But over the last couple hundred years, as scholarship has continued, German scholarship and other um, uh, scholarship in Christian circles, they've really tried to really wrestle with this text because they realize this text, it's not just that there's two different like, competing views and we just got to figure this out. Like, it is a very complicated text. Like, if you've ever gone in there and you start to, like, what does that mean? I don't even, not, I don't even care what the views are. What does that verse mean? It's very complicated. I mean, Paul's even, like, putting a view of, like, you know, it's sin that's doing this in me, not me. And you're like, what are you doing, Paul? Like, that's not even biblical. Like, you got to take responsibility for your sin, man. Like, what in the world? So there are a lot of complex things. And the reason why it's complex, here's the thing, is because we miss, and it just goes back to my previous point, we miss the rhetorical argument that he's in the middle of. We miss that. We miss the fact that he's using key terms that's showing you that he's presenting a rhetorical situation. Because people really get hung on with this. This is the number one issue. If you can really wrestle through this issue, the question really is, is Paul even speaking about himself? That you have to answer. And that is something that you're like, well, of course Paul's speaking about himself. He uses I. But I just quoted to you the question in chapter 3, verse 7, where he said, but if through my lie the truth of God abounded to his glory, why am I still being judged as a sinner? Is he talking about himself there? No. There's a lot of rhetorical things going on here, and we have to understand. This is not just a quick, like, well, Paul, when he typically uses I, means it's pretty much him, so it's got to be Paul. We can't just settle for that answer. We have to have better answers than that because there's something much more complex going on here. So that's the nature of the debate. Is Paul speaking about himself? Is he talking about his current experience? Is he talking about his Judaistic experience? Is he talking about his Pharisee days? Is he talking as somebody else? Is he representing Israel? Is he representing Adam? Is he, there's so many different views. We tend to simplify it down. Well, is he a Christian or is he a non-Christian? It's way more complicated than that. There could be a, up to like 50 different views on this passage. Not, I'm not saying that there are. But the, the amount of variables that you would put in, the amount of, like, permutations, if I can use that word, the number of different options, it could get up to, like, 50 or 60 different views that you could have on Romans 7 because of all the different ways that Paul could be representing his speaking. So you have to drill down on what is Paul talking about there 
in Romans 7. So I'm going to leave it at that for now. Yeah. But if I need to answer what my view is, is that is this a good time for that or no? This is a great time for that. Okay, and, perfect. And okay. But make it to where, uh, you know, what your view is and the average church member, which is what our passion is, when they're reading Romans 7, how is that going to impact them? Yeah, amen. Well? Amen. Oh, man. Understanding Romans 7 this way has helped me in my view of sanctification more than anything I've ever learned in Scripture. Seriously, by, by far, hands down. And my brother, who did not write the stuff, but he, well, he loves this stuff too. He's like, he says, this is the same thing. This has changed, changed. It's not like, like it's like a totally different view of sanctification. It's just really helped a lot. Um, the question, the point is, is that we approach Romans 7 with the wrong question. I, that's what I'm, I'm convinced of that. The, the question that we ask is, is Paul speaking as a Christian or as a non-Christian? That's the wrong question. Paul's not even addressing that specifically in the text. He's not even trying to tell you, okay, so here's who I'm speaking as. I'm speaking as a Christian. He doesn't really go after that, and hence why there's a whole debate. And the reason why there's a debate is because they're, again, centered around the wrong question. The question that Paul's, Paul, I think Paul would be kind of like, do like a huge sigh if he knew that this was our debate all this time. Like, oh, you missed the point. Okay. The question should be, what era of time am I working under right now? And you're like, what does that mean? Well, there are some key phrases. Romans 6, verse 14, you might, you can peek over there if you ever want to, but Romans 6, 14, um, sin shall not master over you because you are not under what? Under law, but under grace. Those are metonymies. That's a big term that just says, like, it's words that mean, that are referring to something else. Under law is the old covenant, yeah? Under grace is the new covenant. Uh, Chapter 7, verse 6, talks about the spirit, the newness of the spirit, and not the oldness of the letter. Metonymies. Another way to say the old covenant and the New Covenant. See how we're going? 6, 14, 7, 6. We're getting up into Romans 7. Chapter 8, verse 2. The law of the spirit of life and the law of sin and death. New Covenant, Old Covenant. You see that? If you're paying attention to his argument, he's helping you understand this is the difference between the Old Covenant and the New Covenant. That's the question we need to be asking. So the issue is, is Paul speaking when he's talking about law, and there's 25 verses in Romans 7. So how many times does he use the word law in Romans 7? He uses it 23 times. That's insane. See, the problem is, is when we think about, is Paul speaking about a Christian or is he speaking as a non-Christian, we're missing the whole point that this whole chapter is about the law. It's not about the Christian experience. Even if you want to say it's a, um, the best kind of, you know, godly experience, it's still under the law, right? We miss that. In Galatians chapter 4 and 5, he says, don't even put yourself under that yoke of slavery of the law anymore. Don't do that. But then we try to, like, vindicate Paul, and we're like, yeah, but he loves the law, and he agrees with it, and he wants to obey it. Yeah, but he, if he's a Christian, he's not under it. Why is he so trying to fulfill it? And like, well, he's trying to fulfill the spirit. So we start to spiritualize the passage. No, that's not, that's not what he's talking about. He's under the law. So the question is, you have to understand, what era is he under? He's under law. So as I was studying this, it became clear to me 
What Paul is talking about is someone who is under law, not under grace. He's under the old covenant and not under the new covenant. And when we understand that, this really helps us as Christians because you see the enslaving nature of what it is like to be under the law. Do you see that in Romans 7? I, what I want to do, I'm not able to do because why? Because I'm under the law. And I don't have the spirit of the new covenant within me. And I wish that I did. Now, this is what's interesting. I don't take that he's a Christian, and I don't technically take that he's an unbeliever either. I take the fact that he's under the law. So who would that be then? It would be the believer under the law. See, a lot of times I'll like say, I'll literally say it verbatim, and I have my students in my class say this, and they're like, oh, he takes the unbeliever view. I'm like, no, no, you didn't read it. I said, believer under the law. Who would that be? There's lots of examples of those in the Old Testament. Ezra, Nehemiah, David. Why does David say, create in me a what? Clean heart. Don't you already have a clean heart, David? Why do you need to say, create in me a clean heart? Because he knows after his sin with Bathsheba, I don't have the new covenant heart. That Ezekiel 36 promises will come one day. I don't have that. That's the whole point of Romans 7. Why does even the Old Testament saint, the best and the best of Israel, need a completely different heart? Why? Because everybody is sold under sin when they're under the law. And you need the grace of the new covenant. So when you now understand that in light of being a Christian and you have the new covenant, you have an ability that Old Testament saints never had. Access and power to be able to be the all God wants you to be. And you can see that just shining in Romans chapter 8, can't you? There is no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus. The law of the spirit of life has set you what? Free from the law of sin and death that I just talked about in Romans chapter 7. For what the law could not do, it was weak in the flesh. It was unable to give you this power to be able to be what God wants you to be. What the law was unable to do, weak as it was through the flesh because of our flesh, God conquered the flesh by giving you power through his son so that now you can walk in the spirit and not walk in the flesh. Does that make sense? Right? So now you have the power. Every day you have a choice. Do I walk in the spirit or do I walk in the flesh? That's it. You have the ability to be what God wants you to be right now. Like, literally, this very second. All you need to do is put God and his priorities first, and you're walking in the Spirit. Whenever you're worshiping God and putting him first in everything that you're doing as a Christian, you're not in sin. And that's exactly, it lines up exactly with Galatians chapter 5. When you walk in the Spirit, you shall certainly not carry out the what? The desires of the flesh. When you're in the spirit, you're not in the flesh. When you're in the flesh, you're not in the spirit. God has given us now this option that we can actually conquer every time that we walk in the spirit. The question is, how do I walk in the spirit? That's a question for another time. You're like, oh, I want that right now. Right, but that's, that is the main idea. You need to be able to, to understand that you have the ability to walk in the spirit, and you can be what God wants you to be right now today. That doesn't mean you're going to, like, endure in that. You might slip up the next moment, the next moment after that. But the point is, is that in any moment of time, you can be what God wants you to be today. And that puts all the onus on you now to be responsible for yourself, right, and not try to blame 
Romans 7 is like, oh, well, you know, I'm just going to inevitably sin because, you know, Paul inevitably sinned and he was just frustrated. But that's okay. We just kind of live in this, you know, back and forth struggle. No, that's not what Romans 7 is talking about at all. It's not what it's talking about at, at all. You have the ability to be what God wants you to be today, and that should encourage you, knowing that there's always forgiveness for any sin that you commit, but also at the same time, there is always the next opportunity to walk in the Spirit and to conquer that sin. Okay? Amen? Okay? I know. There we go. There we go. Yep. Yeah, that was the short version, too. Yeah. Thank you, Jay. Uh, th- I'll point out one thing, and then I'm going to just have Jay close this in prayer. Um, this issue would be really easy if you made it a, a really simple comparison. What word is used over and over again in chapter 7? He already said it. Law. What word is used over and over again in chapter 8? Spirit. It's like it's obvious. This is what you used to be, and you can't do that. It doesn't work. And this is what we have now. Um, I'd add to what he said. All of the Old Testament saints were saved by faith and by credit. Abraham believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness. Why is he by credit? Because payment hasn't been made yet. Payment would be made in Christ. So all the Old Testament saints looked forward to the new covenant. I mean, when Ezekiel was writing on the new covenant, when Jeremiah was writing on the new covenant, they must have been blown away. Oh, this is great. This is what we've been looking for. Um, So uh, very good, Jay. Thank you for that. Uh, The Lord has blessed our church, and as we move to our new building, we're going to be expanding as many teaching opportunities as possible, and Jay's going to be part of that. Jay, why don't you close us in prayer briefly? Let's pray. Father, what an opportunity we have as the body of Christ you have knit together the body of Christ uh, in a unique way. You started with the people Israel. It was a nation from the same physical lineage. And now it has blossomed into, um, you have the church separately here now as a new creation under the new covenant, bringing together every nation and tribe and tongue in this era as we await the redemption of Israel in the coming kingdom. Lord, we thank you for inviting us to be a part of that. And thank you, O God, for a new covenant that gives us the ability to be what you have called us to be. How frustrating it must have been under the law to have the high standards and recognize we're not even achieving it. Even if we did everything externally, our hearts are still misguided and lost. We need that new heart, and we, if we are in Christ, we have that new heart. If anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old things have gone, the new things have come. Lord God, help us to know that reality so that we may be shining examples of Jesus Christ to the world. Thank you for the opportunity that we have as a church to be that light here in Bakersfield. We just continue to pray for the gospel ministry in this town. We continue to pray that people's eyes would be open to the truth, that the gospel would go forth in people's lives and that they would come to know Christ, not just so that they would go to heaven, but so that you may receive the inheritance that is due to your name, that you may usher in more and more people to be trophies of your grace and your mercy. Thank you for allowing us to be a part of that. And we pray, Father, for the service today, for the communion, and we pray, Lord God, that we would Uh, worship you and give you all the glory and all the honor in Jesus name. Amen. Amen. I know you wouldn't like this, but let's give Jay a hand. That was fun. You are dismissed.